The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. I do not want to take for granted that you may have a copy or that you have a copy of God's word with you. So please feel free. If you do not have a Bible, take this as a gift from us to you. Uh, we're on page 838. Uh, big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. So uh, please feel free to take that as you will. As you're turning there, just a reminder that, uh, uh, again, next week, Gilbert and Beery, uh, we get to make the Reverend Gilbert and Beery. Uh, so you can call him the Rev officially starting next Sunday. So uh, we will have a special called business meeting within our service that may be new to some of you. Uh, after uh, Paul, uh, Brother Paul preaches the sermon next week, we will uh, have a time to vote to affirm uh, congregationally that Gilbert is there. Gilbert, I don't think that's going to be a problem, but we're going to make you sweat it out another week just to be sure. So it is what it is. And uh, the last thing that I'll say tonight, many of you, uh, this may not affect many of you, but we've taken kind of a summer break from our Ask the Pastor Facebook Live Uh, We'll be back on tonight, 8.30, on our Facebook page, Tower View Baptist Church. Uh, I'm going to throw out a question. It's going to whet your appetite. What about tattoos, Pastor? What do you do with that? Ooh, why don't you preach on that today? Well, we're not going to. You can log on at 8.30 tonight and help us figure that out. So uh, that'll be 8.30 p.m. tonight online. All right, so we are studying through the book of Mark right now. We are on the 2021 plan, by the way. Uh, That's when we'll finish the book of Mark, when some of you turn just a few more years older. And we are taking our time to go through the the apostles, the 12 apostles. We've looked at Peter, we've looked at James, we've looked at John, and now the fourth one, Andrew. And I think this opening illustration is one that will speak very much volumes to who Andrew was. It's like that great conductor of the New York Orchestra. How many are symphony people? You like to go watch the symphonies, especially in our great Kauffman Center. Amazing stuff, isn't it? Love that stuff. And someone asked that one of the great conductors of the New York Orchestra, what is the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra? And immediately, when I saw the question, I thought, every one of them, right? I mean, come on. Surely, he said, the question asker said, it must be the strings, right? And his answer may surprise some of you. The orchestra conductor actually said the most important thing that no one wants to play is an old phrase that you know very well, second fiddle. Did you ever think about this? He went on to say, he said, I can play with plenty of first stringers, but someone to play second fiddle with joy is one of our greatest problems to fill. If we don't get a second fiddle, we don't have an orchestra. So if you want to play in the orchestra, there's your chance, right? (laughs) Praise the Lord. Isn't that true in the church as well? There are so many people who are willing to play first chair, but very few who are willing to play second fiddle when it comes to the church. The fact is, those who serve out of the spotlight are those who make the church function as it should. It's those people you don't see up here on the platform, usually, that keep things running as they are. But may, they may never preach a sermon to the masses, but they do the work of the ministry. These are the front-line servants of Jesus without anyone really knowing who they are. Maybe you're one of them. It reminds you of that verse from Proverbs chapter 27, which is very familiar to many of you. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And that is exactly 
what the disciple, the apostle Andrew was about. He was out of the spotlight. He was a supportive guy. He was a behind-the-scenes guy. He didn't preach to thousands like his brother Peter. He didn't write five books like John, and he wasn't the dominant, fiery personality that we saw in James a few weeks back. Instead, Andrew was a positive, supportive disciple that made all other ministries function as they ought to function. He preferred one-to-one rather than preaching as I am to you right now in the masses. He never saw a crowd, though, as a sea of faces. Like his Savior, he always did, Andrew did, saw the individual. And he was faithful and did not want to be in the spotlight. For example, he led Peter, as we will see a little later on, his brother to Christ, and Peter then became the face of the organization. Well, that didn't work out well for him. Or where Peter was without Andrew, where would they be? They wouldn't be here because God used Andrew to do that. And this is what makes the Peters of the church able to proclaim the gospel message, is that there are Andrews, so to speak, that minister and function in ways that others may not do. In a sense, and when I preach, I am like a Peter, we, can, we preach up here, but it's so many of you that do so much work that no one will ever know, no one will ever see, and that's how most of us are. Most of you will connect with this disciple, this apostle Peter, or I'm sorry, uh, Andrew, more than you will with Peter, James, or John. Why? Because you're just simple people. That didn't sound good. I caught myself there. You're not just simple people, but you are faithful people day in and day out. I think you will excuse my uh, uh, Freudian slip there. So how do you become a supportive disciple? What does this look like? Well, it starts with Andrew's very simple thing. The big idea for Andrew's life and the big idea for every Christian's life is this. The ultimate joy is to know personally or know Jesus Christ personally, and the second ultimate joy is to make him known. That's what Andrew was all about. That's what every Christian should be all about. You see, everything you need for godliness and service is found in prayer. And many of you are like Andrew. You are prayer warriors. You're behind the scenes praying for things. And in order to truly love and serve others, we must first take our own heart and offer it to others and risk it being broken as Andrew did and we will see today. John Knox, the great English reformer from hundreds of years gone by, said this. He said, quote, God did not call you from darkness to light to the end that you should return to darkness and refuse to serve Christ. And Andrew didn't do that. He wanted his whole life to be about Jesus Christ. But before you think, oh, was he like Arnold Schwarzenegger? Was he a girly man? Was he just some kind of weakling? No. In fact, what I want you to see today are three truths about being a supportive disciple. I want you to note this. He had a strong persona this guy named Andrew did. He had a strong personality. He was in a supportive place, but undergirding all that, he had a selfless practice. The point of this is when we say supportive, we don't mean weak. If I go to you and you get those job titles, you know, it's no longer secretary. It's like support, you know, number 979867. So it looks good on a resume. That's not what we're talking about here. Andrew was strong. His name literally means manly. I mean, how much easier can you get? This guy's name is manly. He was really, he was hardworking, he was rugged, he was a fisherman, he was a hands-on kind of guy, but he was also a get-the-job-done kind of guy, if you know what I mean. Many of you are like that. He was a fisherman, and there were requirements to be fishermen. I could not do this. He wasn't a desk jockey. He wasn't a, a cubicle king at the cube farm at the office with respect to those positions. 
He had hard work. He had calloused hands. He had a sunburnt face. He had a strong back. And unlike myself and most of us, he had big arms because you wouldn't make it in the open sea without being able to pull those ropes as you could. His job demanded that he face the elements to venture out of the safety from shore and catch fish, even at the subject of being close to some of the big storms in the area. He had a strong backbone to get out there and get the job done. The fish, surprise, the fish wouldn't just jump in his boat. Wouldn't that be amazing? I know you can use dynamite to do that, but really the fish don't just jump in your boat. He had to get out there, and he had from start to finish and couldn't wait for them to get in. He had to launch out into the deep, Andrew did. He had to sail back. He had to put the nets down, drag the fish ashore, and take them to market all by his lonesome himself. He was not dependent on his good looks, although I'm sure he was a rugged-looking man. He was not a smooth salesman or his big education. It didn't matter. What he smelled like or sounded like did not matter at all. He just had to get the job done. His hands, quite frankly, did the talking. He was dedicated, he was disciplined, and he was determined. He got up early. He had his boat in the water probably before the sun even came up. He had to get up early and not burn daylight. He wasn't a merchant who sat around all day selling stuff. He wasn't a farmer waiting uh, next to his house all day for the crops to come up. He wasn't an educator with respect to all those things. He was a fisherman. And anyone could bring their blood, sweat, toil, and tears to this position. He was masculine. He was muscular. He was Andrew. But he was not in the limelight. He was behind the scenes. As we look at him, I want to remind you today, we are not here to say, hey, be like Andrew. We want to say, hey, be like Jesus Christ. But we want to see how Jesus Christ worked through a man named Andrew. If you're able this morning, will you join me in standing for God's word as we read Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 13 down to verse 18. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. 838 on the Pew Bible if you need it. And it says, And he, Jesus, went up to the mountain and called him to whom those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, verse 14, Mark chapter 3, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangeres, that is, the sons of thunder. And we stop right here today, Andrew. Will you join me in prayer as we go before our Lord this morning? Father, as we come before you, we are reminded that in the body of Christ, there are many different functions. Father, there are hands, so to speak, there are feet, there are, there are different parts of the body, uh, metaphorically speaking, that get the work of the ministry done in this church. Father, I dare say that I believe that most people in this church will identify with Andrew more than anyone else because, Father, you've equipped most people to be like Andrew more than anything else. So, Father, as we pray, may this be an encouraging, a challenging study. May it point us back to the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, and the gospel message. May it all be for your glory. Father, thank you that meekness is not weakness, truly, because it all comes from your strength. Father, we thank you for this, and we pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. As we come to study Andrew, I, I, I want you to look at this strong persona. I'm going to ask you, we're going to do some flipping today, and I'll, I'll try and get that over. If you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, hold your spot in Mark 3, we'll be back, but Matthew, one gospel over to the left, chapter 3. 
And I want you to see where we get this note of his strong persona. We don't have a lot of verses, as we don't with a lot of these disciples, about Andrew. So we need to look at other passages to fill in the context. So what I want you to see in Matthew 3, and we'll walk through this, is he is going, Andrew is going to the preaching of John the Baptist. He couldn't have been more masculine than to see the ministry of John the Baptist. It's a reflection on Andrew's manliness. He wasn't drawn to the ministry of the posh and the clean and the, uh, the ritualistic temple in Jerusalem with all its pomp and circumstance and splendor. He went to the ministry where truth was spoken and spoken straight. You don't like when people beat around the bush with you, do you? I mean, some of you do sometimes in your life. But man, John preached it straight and Andrew was drawn to that. And he was willing, Andrew was, to go out in the wilderness under a prophet of God because he didn't want some frou-frou, bon-bon eating ministry to be part of his life. He wasn't looking for Joel Osteen. He was looking for the truth being spoken. He was a man's man and he wanted truth in a heavy dose. Andrew, and I don't have a picture, I didn't get a map of this, but Andrew's on the Sea of Galilee on the north. And he... Uh, Jerusalem to the south and, and to the further to the east is the Jordan River, which has the funnel that goes to the Dead Sea. And that is where John is at. So Andrew isn't just going from here down to Worlds of Fun, you know, a quarter mile walk down the way, 15, 20 minutes. Andrew somehow heard about the preaching of John. And he heard about this kind of preaching and he was willing to go no matter how far it took him to get there. Because he was sick of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, the hypocrites as they were doing what they were doing. He didn't want a country club Christianity or a faith, not Christianity at this point. He wanted a place where God came down and spoke what was right. So look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, In those days, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Let me just say again, John is a straight shooter. If you had a John Wayne, Arnold Schwarzenegger type shooter, that's twice I've referenced Arnold. I'm sorry about that. Uh, This is the guy that would do it. Look at what message John has right from the get-go, verse 2. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look, this is not a message that's going to draw a lot of people and win and influence people. John was a straight shooter. Andrew was one that liked that message. And there was a response there, and people came out in droves to hear him. Look at verse 3, Matthew chapter 3. For this is he who spoke by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John wasn't out just sharing a message. He wasn't saying as the millennial generation, which I don't know why I'm in that generation, but I am. He wasn't just having a dialogue. He wasn't just having a drama or a skit in the wilderness. He was a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make way the ready of the make way the path of the Lord. It's a great reminder to us as we connect the ministry of Andrew and John to Andrew himself that you need to pursue the Lord with a relentless, lifelong, obstacle-defying passion, as you'll see on the screen. You need to remove every barrier in your life and in your heart, church that would prevent the king of glory from your soul. Put away, John says, your crooked living and make straight your lives. John the Baptist put it up there and said, look, you want it, you can take it. If you don't want it, then leave it. Get out of here. This isn't for you. 
But if a person wanted more of the truth, they could receive more of the truth. Go to verse 4. It says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. I don't know about you. This guy's a weird-looking guy. Amen? He's a rough-looking guy. He's a mountain man. He had a rock for his pulpit, John did, a sky for his temple. The Jordan River was his baptistry, if you want to use that phraseology. And he ate honey, but he didn't preach like he ate honey. He preached that hell was hot, heaven is sweet, sin is black and white, judgment is sure, and this guy named Jesus who he's going to point to is the Savior of the world. He was an old-time prophet, and Andrew loved every bit of it. He said, Darren, where's Andrew in all this? We'll get there. Hold on. Go down to verse 7. And it says, we're going to skip through just a little bit. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, that's John the Baptist, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John preached a message that says, you weren't born into this. You're not just an Israelite because you were born into this. He said, I don't care who your daddy is or who your granddaddy is. He said, I don't even care if you're Abraham's your father, except that you repent and believe the gospel. And look at verse 10. This will get people to come to your church. Look at verse 10. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Even every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That'll grow your church in five quick steps, let me tell you. But that was John's preaching. And while they may have been making fun of him in Jerusalem by the religious establishment, there were men and women like Andrew who were willing to travel miles upon miles upon miles with all the danger that came with that to hear this kind of preaching. Andrew was drawn to that because it speaks to his life and his persona. Not as a fisherman, but how his inner person was made up. Andrew was a strong man, but we love him for this. Friends, it says something about you here in this church. Let's be honest here. We are not trying to hold back the truth from you. We pray we speak the truth in love, but it speaks a lot about you as the church. This church has many Andrews, so to speak. You believe and are willing to go off the main highway to get out of the frou-frou-ness of American Christianity, to go where the truth is preached, and not to care what others say, but to say before God, I will come and sit and hear the word of the Lord and hear the ministry of the Lord. I pray from this pulpit in our Sunday schools, from our youngest to our oldest, that we never get away from the fact that we call people to repent and believe the gospel and to make way the path of the Lord. You know, there are always, you know, I love sports, but there are 12 reasons, if I can give these to you briefly, that I don't like to go to sports, and they relate to what I just said. You know, every time I went, they asked me for my money. Did you ever think about that? And the people sitting in the row didn't seem very friendly. In fact, if they're, if they're a different uh, fan base, you might not like them at all. The seats are always hard. Tina, we know this from the Royals. The coach never came to visit me. I mean, come on. Where did the coach come up in the stands and say Hi. The referees or the umpires made a decision I didn't agree with. I saw that replay a lot better than you did. Ref, get some better eyes. And I was sitting with a bunch of hypocrites. They only came to see what others were wearing. They only wanted to see the uniforms. Some games went into overtime, and I was late getting home. I mean, come on, what were they thinking? 
The games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. I mean, really, do they not take me into consideration? My parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Shame that thought. Since I have read books on sports, I feel that I know more than the coach anyway. They call me the Monday morning quarterback. And I don't want to take my children because I want to choose for them what sport they like best. Those reasons sound familiar with anything in churches anywhere else? Every time I went, they asked me for money. I, I, I don't think we do that here. The, the band played some songs I'd never heard before. I missed that one, but it's there. You know, friends, you can run this list. How easily in America, how easily in Christianity, do we let our churches be defined by what is most comfortable, what is most preferential, what is most natural to us, instead, perhaps, what is most natural to the Word of God? This is not a place for entertainment, but a place of exposition. And Adam, you can put that up. This is not a place to tickle your ears, but a place to build saints. This is not a place of convenience, but a place of conviction. And notice with conviction also comes comfort. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you read Psalm 51. The fact is, friends, if you're here at this church or any church that preaches like-mindedly, then you are like Andrew in that you want to bypass all the religiosity of your day. And you want to bypass all the hypocritical living of your day. And you want to go out where you can hear the word of God preached. You must have a strong persona to go anywhere, anytime, anyplace to have the truth preached to you. But that was Andrew. And that's what we are called to do. Friends, may we never, may we never settle. Whatever church God may call you to, may you never settle to treat your church like your favorite sporting event. And I love sports. You know that. I love pizza. You know that. But we're here to worship the Lord. May everything we do point back to that. Amen? And may that be what we're called to do. Andrew went out to the wilderness to see that. You say, Darren, where do you get that from? We will get there in a little bit, but hold your horses for that second. He had a strong persona. Notice, secondly, Andrew had a very supportive place. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you'll turn back there just very briefly. Mark chapter 3. I want you to notice where he is on this list. And I want you to remember that this list is a list that comes as and by way of remembering that God set this list up in a very specific way. Behind Simon, his brother, Andrew and Peter, Simon and Peter are brothers. James and John are brothers. They're all in this fishing business together. He is the last one, Andrew is, on this list of the first inner circle. You think a guy like Peter, a guy like James, and a guy like John needed someone to cool their jets from time to time? Guess who that was? It was Andrew. That's who he was. Mark chapter 3 says that. Now, if you'll flip over, and I know we're doing a lot of flipping. You know me. We don't do a lot of flipping. But go back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 29. I want to show you this as they come in. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. It says this. And immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, Simon and Andrew with James and with John. He has proximity to Jesus. He is closer, Andrew is to Jesus, than most of the other disciples, eight of the other disciples, perhaps at that point. The last week of Jesus' life, we see this further in Mark 13. You don't need to go there. But he was sitting with Christ, Andrew was, on the Mount of Olives, and they were questioning him privately. And Andrew was in that first layer of disciples. He is visible, but he's also invisible in the text. 
The other three are known, Peter, James, and John, for their public ministry, but Andrew is known for his private ministry. He wasn't vocal like Peter. He wasn't outspoken like John. He wasn't fiery like James, but he was supportive. He was willing to play second fiddle to the glory of God if that's what God asked him to do. He grew up. I mean, think, he grew up with Peter, guys. You have a family member like that? You have a family member where you're the, you're the church quiet mouse over here and you got this big domineering person over here? That was Andrew. He was living in that life. He was content to be near the top, but not at the top. He was content to be who God made him to be. He was not a commanding personality. He was not a, a military term here, Nelson. He was not a POC. He was not a point of contact. He was a supporter. He was a facilitator. He was a backer. He was very similar, for those of you who know this, to Barnabas. He was Mr. Encouragement who took, like Barnabas, second position to his brother Peter. This is exactly the kind of people that we need today in our church. We are called to serve one another in love, but only grace can dethrone the love of self that is the way of our life for others, as you'll see. For every first Peter that comes, or one Peter that comes, you need many, many, many Andrews. We are called to serve out of love. Adam will put that up for you. Without these, the church does not run. Without these Andrews, the church does not come to be. When you got a, a Peter personality crying foul over here, and a James personality crying foul over here, and a John in the middle who is sectarian as he was, there is no function that happens without the buffers that are the Andrew types of our church. You ready to turn again? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Very familiar passage for many of you, but one that you need to see in light of Andrew. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'll read it as well. It won't be up on the screen, but I will read it as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 14. What I want to remind you of as you turn is each of the 12 disciples, each of the 12 apostles are found in the church today. That is that each of these personalities come to bear. And here, God is going to make a point to us that he's placed everyone in the church where God wants them to be. Not gifted or made the same, but if we all had Peters running around, we'd be a disaster, right? We all had James as running around. I, that would be the most contentious business meeting you've ever been at, even a church potluck. It requires that every kind of person the human body needs in the church is found in the church. And that's what Corinthians is going to remind us of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14. And it says this. It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. For the foot, verse 15, should not say, because I'm not a hand, I, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. The church at Corinth, which was a circus in itself, had so many, had supportive roles that they hated where they were. They hated it. Why can't I be in the spotlight like that? Why can't I share the sermon? Why can't I give that report over there? Why can't I teach? Why can't I do this? But the foot is a good thing. It's kind of a good thing, but a foot gets dirty, doesn't it? It gets covered, even with socks. I mean, we, it's amazing what our kids track in, even without their socks, you know, with socks on, even going out. We have sand everywhere in our, in, our, in our house because it gets everywhere. Yet where could a body go without the feet? Isn't it what the scripture said, that how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? But here in Corinth, they are upset. Some of them are. They're saying, well, the grass must be greener on the other side. Why did God make me to serve in this role? Why did he give me this role? 
and he says, I, I wish I was like so-and-so, and, and if I was like so-and-so, then I'd be giving back to God in the church. Woe is me, I'm only a foot. Woe is me. But have you ever had a doctor try and do surgery with his toes on his foot with a scalpel? How'd that work out for you? Probably not very well. Because a foot is not meant to incise people's body. That's what a hand is supposed to do. And what is, what is Paul saying here? How does this relate to Andrew? Go down to verse 16. And it says, And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I don't belong in the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. The ears are off to the side. When you're looking at people, uh, you probably don't stare at their ears. That would be kind of odd, you know. My mama taught me you stare people in the eye, right? You start staring at people's ears, they might think you're funny or, or something like that. You need to look them in the eye. It would drive them nuts. But someone would say, I'm, I'm only in, God called me to the ear part of the church, whatever that is. I'm not the eyes. I'm not important. Well, guess what? If we don't hear, we can't see the right things, right? And then down in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, there would be, where would be the sense of hearing? It, it, Paul says, look, if everyone was an eye in the church, so to speak, you'd be like a big cyclops. Or if you'd be like Sauron from the Lord of the Rings, you'd just be this evil eye kind of staring out at everybody. Or if we only had Peters in the church, we couldn't ever speak. And then it goes on in verse 17. He says, if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And here's the catch. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, where as he chose. Isn't it interesting? We read in Mark 3 when we started out that Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him all that he chose and all that he desired. And at the same time, it's God who places you in the church where you're to serve as he chose. Isn't that interesting? Such an attitude of discontentment that comes up in churches today where people say, you know, I don't want to be the Andrew that God called me to be. I want to be a Peter. I want to be up front. I don't want to play second fiddle. I want to be the first fiddle. If I'm not the first fiddle, then I'm going to make a stink about it at the business meeting. And if I can't make a stink about it at the business meeting, I'm going to take it to Facebook. And if I can't take it to Facebook, I'm going to call Fox 4 Problem Solvers, and they're going to solve my problem. <laughs> That's how a lot of people treat the church. Such an attitude of discontentment of where I am in the body of Christ is actually an indictment, a summons against God. Because we are saying, God, I know better than you. I'm wiser than you. God, I'm more sovereign than you. I, I, I can see how this is better. God, you mismanaged this and you misplaced this, so let me straighten you out, Lord. It's really what you're saying. You know, uh, we're in football season. Let me give you another sports reference. If you're a quarterback and you try and play kicker at the same time, it's hard to throw a football and kick it at the same time. Punters do that. Yes, I know. I realize that. But you can't throw a long Hail Mary pass down the thing while you're kicking up your leg at the same time. That would just be a little bit odd. You might break your leg as that linebacker who's wa silly watching you do that just puts you to the ground to get you out of your misery. A quarterback doesn't act like a kicker. A kicker doesn't act like a tackle. A tackle doesn't act like a punter. That's why he goes on in verse 19, as you see it here in 1 Corinthians. It says, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet there is one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, verse 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Paul's point is this, and as it relates to Andrew, it is those parts of the body that are so visible that aren't necessarily the ones that are most necessary. 
Look, you could have the most muscular physique ever, but if your innards are all messed up and you die because your innards are all messed up, then it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. You know what I'm saying? The most important parts of your body can't be seen. They're internal organs. And if you have the choice of, uh, of giving up a finger for your heart that keeps beating the blood or giving up a kidney or something else to stay alive, I imagine most of you would pick losing one finger over that. This is what is outward and what is seen, but those parts of the body that are unseen are for the working of the church, for the Andrews of the world. You know, it reminds me of a toddler's, uh, you know, nine rules. Are you ready for these? Toddler's nine rules of ownership. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hands, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had a little while, if I had it five minutes ago, it's still mine, even if I'm not playing with it right now. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way again. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like it's mine, it's mine. Or if I saw it first, it's mine. Or if you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And if it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> it's just, just take it with you. That's how a lot of church members are with the body of Christ. Dare I say, myself included at times. We need to find a place to serve, folks, that will reveal. And Adam, you can put this up. You need to find a place to serve that will reveal the limits of your resources and the riches of God's grace. Because so many of us say, that's mine, that's mine. I've never done it this way. That's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Oh, it's broken, it's yours. Even as we study the disciples, there are parts of Peter that we can relate to. There are many, many Andrews, though, in this body of Christ that are so valuable to keeping us and safeguarding us from that toddler-like church member attitude. Your place may not be as attractive as others in this church, but it's where God has you. How important was Andrew in the body of Christ? He was so important. So important that Andrew brought Peter to Christ. We're headed there in just a minute. And he stood there when God multiplied the fish and the loaves. Yet he led people to Christ one to one. How important is it to be an Andrew, to be a supportive disciple? And in that day, many who are first in the church will be shown as being last, as Jesus said, and many who are last will be first on the final day because they served as God called them to serve. I'm running short on time, but I want to go to one last place as we do. Will you go to John chapter 1 as we look at our last point before the Lord's Supper today? Lord's Supper. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 19. We have seen that Andrew has a strong persona. He was not just a weakling. He was a strong man, but he was supportive that God placed him. He was also in a supportive place. Strong as he was, he was okay with where God put him because he knew that was the safest and best place for him to be. John chapter 1, verse 19. I want you to see quickly just three quick texts in this that show every time that when Andrew speaks, he speaks one-on-one. He doesn't speak to the masses. Maybe he did, but we don't have it represented. And what we see is that Andrew is a person whose life intersects with people and the Lord, and he always brings it back together. There is no more vital ministry than that in the church, not just to be a people person, not just to be sold out for the Lord, Lone Ranger Christian, but a, lo- a Christian within the body of Christ that loves people so much, you're willing to go one-on-one. John chapter 1 and verse 19. This is what it says. And this is the testimony of John, that is John the Baptist, from when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask who you are. And drop down to verse 23, we'll skip some of this. 
He says in verse 23, he said, John the Baptist said, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. These men had gathered to hear the preaching of John, and he has two disciples with him, John the Baptist does. He has John, the apostle John we studied last week, and he has Andrew. Go down to verse 35, chapter 1, verse 35. It says, the next day, John was standing, John the Baptist, to be specific, was standing with two of his disciples. Who are those disciples? John and Andrew. And I want you to know that Andrew with John the Apostle are these, and they were attracted to his preaching. Look at verse 36. And he, John the Baptist, looked as Jesus walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. That that picture is odd itself. He's talking to his disciples, and oh, by the way, here comes Jesus. There he goes. And he tells them, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, John says to his disciples, guys, I'm just a regular Joe guy. John the Baptist is. Put your trust in Jesus, not in me. And verse 37, it says, um, the two disciples, again, that's Andrew and and, and John, uh, heard him, heard John the Baptist say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned to them and said, what are you seeking? Jesus looks right at him and says, why are you coming to me? Isn't that the master question? If you're not a Christian here today, why are you here? We're so glad you're here, but why are you here? And that's what Jesus said to them. And he goes on to tell them, he says, why are you here? And he goes on, what are you seeking? And they, again, that's Andrew and John, said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Ooh, good question. In other words, Lord, we want a personal relationship with you. And he says in verse 39, John 1, 39, Jesus said to them, come and you will see. So they came and stayed with him on that day for it was about the 10th hour. The moment of time John mentions here, we looked at a few weeks ago, is the time he knew and the place he was. Do you know the place you were saved? Uh, A brother and I, we were just looking at this a few minutes ago before service, had written in his Bible the time that he knew that God had saved him. Do you know the place and time you were saved? Many of you, this may be a surprise. If there was a clear presentation of the gospel, you will remember. You may not remember the exact day or exact time. You will remember the setting. Because there are some pulpits today, unlike John's, unlike what Andrew was drawn to, that preached such gobbledygook. It's not black or white. It's just plain gray. And only by God's sovereign grace are you saved in a church like that. There's no help from the preacher because it dilutes the very thing that God is doing. And if your religion hasn't changed your life, can I tell you that you need to change your religion because you aren't seeing the real God thing. John laid hold of the real thing and it etched it in his soul. And as John writes this, he doesn't even put his name. We mentioned that. But notice what the first thing Andrew does after John gets saved. Go there to verse 40. It says, so he said to them, so came and where are you staying? And they stayed with him. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother, Simon. What did Andrew do when he turned from John the Baptist to Jesus? What did he do, guys? He went and grabbed Peter. He said, Peter, come over here. Something is happening. But even in his supportive role, he didn't go out and preach and and get a Twitter following under himself. He said, my brother isn't saved. I got to tell him this great news. And he's still playing second fiddle, Andrew is, but he's right where God wants him to be. Look at verse 41. And it says, he 
Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Let me be completely transparent here. It is much easier for you to share the gospel, to speak forth the gospel message that with people you've never met than with people of your own family. Talk about being real. Share the gospel with your family. They know your past. They know where you're at. They know even where they think you're going to be in 20 years. Of all the people who go in your family, you're going to go to Simon Peter. Oh my goodness. What a train wreck. Really? What a human train wreck. Andrew, what are you doing? We found the Messiah. What are you doing? Peter, get in here. And he's never, you couldn't get a word in with Peter. And he's not going to say anything about him. Do you know that you're saved? Yes, I do. And you're going to go to Simon and say, I found him. And look at verse 42. What did, what did Andrew do? He not only told him about Jesus, but for verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. He brought who? Andrew brought Peter. I'm just not going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to bring you to Jesus. And he brought him. It's something contagious about Andrew. He was persuasive. And he was so real in his soul that he had to persuade by God's grace his stubborn brother, Simon Peter. Oh, how we need Andrews in our church, folks. How we need people who, that go to their loved ones and friends and their neighbors and say, come to here, come, listen, the Messiah is here. And let me tell you about him. Andrew didn't take no for an answer from Peter. He didn't say, oh, you don't want Jesus? No worries. Oh, well, I'll just leave you to God's, God's sovereign grace. He no doubt had to have resistance from Peter. But God uses people to bring people to Christ. It is not just the pastor's job to share the gospel. It is everyone's job in here. And since most of you fit the Andrew persona, you are never more like Andrew than when you are bringing someone to Christ. Never more like him when you're working one-on-one, reaching people in your family, your home, your business, your school, and seeing people come to Jesus. Oh, what a great joy that is. Later this fall, we're going to have some evangelism training that, uh, that teaches you how to share your faith. And it, for some of you, sharing your faith is worse than di- skydiving out of an airplane. Or putting on, uh, you know, going in a ballet. You'd rather put on a skin-tight leotard than to share your gospel of the Jesus Christ. I mean, seriously. We all have fears of what it is. But friends, Andrew didn't say anything, as far as we know, except we found Christ. He didn't have all the arguments against atheism and Mormonism and all the isms out there. He just had Jesus. And he shared Jesus. Now, he didn't hold back. We know that. If you're going to convince Peter to come with you, can you imagine what that's like? You have a Peter in your life. You have a strong-headed personality. You've got a, a bowl and a chain. Come on. You know, it's like a stubborn cow at a farm. Get in that milk chute and get that milk out. You know, kick that thing in the hind. You've got to do what you've got to do. But by God's sovereign grace, God had already softened the heart of Peter, and we saw that a couple weeks ago. A couple more things. I've got two and a half more minutes. Let's go here. Go to John chapter 6, guys. John chapter 6, verse 1. I just want to end with this for sake of time. John chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, And after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because he saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus, chapter 6, verse 3 of John, went up on the mountain, and now he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and lifting up his eyes, he saw the large crowd, and he said, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people might eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. 
And Philip answered, uh, this would be my reaction, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of these people. But then, notice who comes on the scene, guys. One of his disciples, Andrew, he's always referred this way, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves. Five barley loaves. And we'll, let me just stop right there for a second. Let me focus on Philip. Philip said, Philip goes to Judas, who's the treasurer of the group, and says 200 denarii is what it would take. Philip goes and reports to Jesus, most likely. That's eight-month salary, guys. It's like working from January to the end of August. We're almost there. And some women were underwriting their ministry, helping them. But Philip looks at this and says, this is impossible. Are you kidding me? Jesus, you're really going to feed all these people. And then Philip comes back. And they go to Andrew. And he says, verse 9, but there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew didn't see 20,000 people, which is probably the estimate of men, women, children. How did he know? He didn't add up all the people from the newsletter who were coming to church or the 200 denarii fund. He sees individuals. He doesn't see numbers. Andrew sees people. And he sees a boy Unlike the others, he sees this boy, the five barley loaves and two fish, and he takes the boy to Jesus, and he says, look, I know we don't have enough money, but Lord, I know you know what to do. We can't have enough Andrews in our church. You know, probably one of the best ways for you to grow spiritually in this church is not to attend another class, although you should be in Sunday school. If you aren't, please let that be the encouragement to do so. But just love and serve others. You want to grow in Christ? Just love and share Christ. When this service is over, many will bolt out, and that's fine. Others will linger. But how much more it would be for an Andrew to remain for some to share the gospel for a short time. Before the service, an Andrew would not be talking to the same people, but he'd be bouncing around to other people in this church saying, hey, how are you doing? I don't know you. How can I help you? That's what Andrew did. One more passage, guys, and I've got a minute left. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I want you to see Andrew in this light. Andrew is not only supportive, but he's, he's, he's selfless and he's strong. But I want you to see John chapter 20 and verse, ch- chapter 12 and verse 20. We'll end with this, and I promise. John 12, 20. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told who? Who'd he tell? Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went to tell Jesus. Look, Philip came to Andrew. He didn't go to the Lord. He is part of the ministry. Philip is. He's chosen by the Lord. Yet Philip didn't find it right to go to the Lord himself. He went to the guy whom he knew he could trust. He went to Andrew. There may be some kind of protocol or inside access. We don't know. But Andrew's the person that knows and is the right one. And Philip wanted Andrew to go with him because Andrew is so focused one-to-one. He knew he could be trusted with that. And great is the contribution of Andrews to the ministry of the Lord. It's like those two cows who were grazing on a pasture land one day. And if you know anything about cows, uh, you know, when they see a milk truck, these are probably the conversations that they have. On the side of the truck, as it drove by these cows on the side of the road, it said, pasteurized, homogenized, standardized, vitamin A added. And one of the cows, as a way and only a cow could say, said to the other, makes you feel sort of inadequate, doesn't it? People try and improve on milk, but the one thing you'll never be able to improve on is the Word of God. 
It doesn't need any pasteurizing, doesn't need any standardizing, doesn't need any homogenizing. Just share the word with others and love them. It's that simple, yet that difficult. That was the picture of Andrew. Will you pray with me as we close today? Father, as we come before you, we once again thank you for these real pictures of real people in the Bible. These aren't just characters from a far, far book in some uh, itinerant ministry some 2,000 years ago that have been edited. Father, this is your word. It is infallible, inerrant, inspired. It is authoritative, sufficient. It's all the great theological truths we know. But Lord, it's also the great practical reality in our lives that, Father, so many of us struggle in this room to want to be in the spotlight so much that we are unwilling, unconvinced, un-whatever to go before you and say, Lord, if you want me to serve there, I'll go there. Father, change our hearts. Encourage us with the fact that you have placed us exactly where we need to be. Father, but thank you that you don't just leave us there both in how you grow us to be more like Christ, but also in the opportunities that you bring us. Father, I'm praying for the Andrews, so to speak, in this church. Praying that you would encourage them, that, 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 that you might give them fruit, Lord, if you be pleased, even a small snippet to, to show them forth what you have done through their efforts. But Father, if you tarry, if you feel in your sovereignty, Lord, in your sovereign plan that showing fruit is not what you have, may we be faithful to the task. Father, may we be as the widow in Luke 18 that prays out time and time again so much, the persistent widow, that you cannot help but to give us justice. Father, we thank you so much. Father, join our church together. Father, when many are crying to be one eye or one foot or one body or whatever it is on this side of things, may we accept what you've given us joyfully, humbly, but with a heart ready to serve. Father, forgive us if we have not. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me in standing today. We're going to do one song and then the Lord's Supper, but let's join